Last week, we resumed our sermon series through the book of Exodus after about a year-long pause. And we're taking two weeks to get reoriented to this marvelous story about redemption. And last Sunday, we saw that our God is the God of the Exodus. God is, our God is the God who delivers his people from slavery. And for the Israelites, that meant deliverance, rescue from bondage in Egypt. But the rest of the Bible teaches us to see the exodus from Egypt as the paradigm for our redemption in Christ. And so for us, Christ has rescued us from bondage to sin and death, a greater bondage than even that of the Israelites. But as you know, deliverance from Egypt isn't the end of the story. And after Israel left Egypt, they spend quite a bit of time wandering through the wilderness before they reach the promised land. And that wilderness period is, a, is an in-between time. They've already been delivered on the one hand, but they've not yet entered into their inheritance in the promised land in Canaan. And the New Testament teaches us to see that, that period of wilderness wandering as a picture of the Christian life. You have passages like 1 Corinthians 10 and Hebrews 3 that, that use this imagery to talk about what it's like for us as followers of Jesus Christ, as we live in this in-between time. We've already been rescued by Christ, and yet we've not yet entered into the fullness of our inheritance in the, the true promised land, the new creation. So God had important lessons to teach Israel in the wilderness, and they are lessons that you and I also need to learn as we make our journey through the wilderness of this world. And so we're going to look at the God of the wilderness today as we kind of survey chapter 15, beginning at verse 22, and then through chapter 20. So let's go ahead and pray and ask for God's help again as we come to his word. And Father, we need your grace today. As we travel through this life, we need your help. We need your strength. We need you to give us what we need. And so we ask that by your word and your spirit this morning, that you would communicate your grace to us. It's through Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, what do we see about the God of the wilderness here in this section of Exodus? There are three things we see. God is a God who sustains his people. God is a God who covenants with his people. And God is a God who instructs his people. So God sustains, God covenants, and God instructs. First, let's consider this, that God sustains his people. Now, when we left off last week, um, Israel had just been delivered at the Red Sea. It's this amazing moment of rescue, and at the beginning of chapter 15, Moses and the people break into song. It's a joyful time. They're, they're riding high at this moment. And immediately afterwards, there's this series of three episodes. They're all related, these three episodes, um, beginning in chapter 15, verse 22, and going through the beginning of chapter 17. And in each one of these episodes... Israel lacks something. It's either food or water. And, and they find themselves in these desperate situations. And so the first thing we see about life in the wilderness is we quickly forget 
about God's care. We so quickly forget about God's care, and that was the case with Israel. Uh, Faced with need, what does Israel do? They grumble. They grumble. And picking up the story in, in verse 22, they set out from the Red Sea. They travel three days through the wilderness of Shur, and they can't find any drinking water. They come to a place called Mara, and the water there is undrinkable. The text tells us it's bitter water. And what is their response? Look at verse 24. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Now, it's been three days, and you can't go very long without water, right? Especially in a, in a dry, hot uh, place like this wilderness. I mean, on the one hand, they're right to be concerned. They, they need water. But didn't God just do a very big thing with water? <laughs> Hasn't God been showing them now for several chapters that, that nothing is impossible for him? I mean, he's, he's promised that he's going to take care of them. He's, he's releasing them from bondage in order to bring them to the promised land. And how quickly they've forgotten. I, I love that little detail. Three days. <laughs> just three days prior, they saw. They saw what God can do at the Red Sea, and yet now they're questioning. And of course, you know the story. God comes through. He miraculously turns the bitter water sweet and leads them to an oasis where there's abundant water. And then you fast forward a few weeks to chapter 16. Israel's now continuing to travel, this time through another area called the Wilderness of Sin. And they've used up all their stores of food. And... As Israel comes to this situation where they they need food, you're thinking at this point, okay, they saw the Red Sea, okay, in the the wilderness of Shur, um, at Marah, God provided water for them. Certainly they'll trust God to provide, right? No, they're hangry. (laughs) They're, They're upset. They're hot. They're tired. Their stomachs are growling, and they grumble again. Chapter 16, look at verses 2 and 3. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And the story goes on, God miraculously provides for them, gives them quail, gives them manna. Third episode, chapter 17, uh, the the beginning of chapter 17. So Israel comes to another place now. Um, They continue to travel through this wilderness. They camp at at a location named Rephidim. And guess what? No water. Now, surely they've learned the lesson, right? They're going to trust God this time. All right, we're we're hopeful for them. And then chapter 17, verse 3, But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And just like in the previous two episodes, God provides, he causes fresh water to flow freely from the rock. But how quickly Israel has forgotten about they're God's care. They grumble and they, they complain. And, and realize the, the kind of grumbling that, that the text is talking about in these passages isn't like the kind of godly lament or godly complaint 
that you see that we see in the Psalms. You know, you, the psalmist is in a tough spot. Uh, he's afraid. He's confused. He's crying out to the Lord in faith. It's a desperate prayer. <clears throat> Desperate prayer of faith, it, it, it makes us feel a little uncomfortable, but he's turning to the Lord. <laughs> the, the Israelites don't turn to God for help, they turn on Moses and start accusing him and, and critiquing him. But of course Moses says in chapter 16, verse 8, your grumbling is not against us, it's not against me, it's not against Aaron, um, but against the Lord. And so the, the grumbling that Exodus, Exodus is talking about is not a humble cry for help or a desperate plea for, for rescue. It's really an accusation against God. You know, God, you don't know what you're doing. You, you can't be trusted. You're not coming through for us. And, and I'm willing to guess that you're a lot like me. Uh, grumbling comes easy. Uh, I've seen God come through for me countless times, numerous times, and yet... Um, as soon as the pressure ramps up, I start to doubt, I start to question, I start to grumble, start thinking dark thoughts about God that he doesn't care. That's why this is happening. God, isn't, God doesn't love his people. If he did, he wouldn't be letting this happen. Um, maybe he likes to see me struggle. That's why this is happening. And that's what Israel did. You know, they, they say God brought them into the wilderness to kill them. After all that he did for them, all the grace and mercy that he showed them in rescuing them from Egypt, they're saying, well, this God just wants to wipe us out. And their thoughts about God are so distorted. And we too, we're so quick to think dark thoughts about God. You know, the, the twisted nature of our hearts makes us question and, and doubt and um, just accuse God of evil things. And the truth is far different than what we imagine. God hasn't abandoned them in the wilderness. In fact, God is testing our faith in the wilderness. And that's the second thing we see about this uh, journey through the wilderness. We quickly forget God's care, but God is testing our faith. You see, it's no accident what we read in these chapters about Israel coming into these situations where they're faced with need. God is leading them. God is sovereignly guiding Israel through the wilderness, through the hand of Moses, and he's purposefully putting them in these circumstances. Um, they're under his wise fatherly care, and, and the text tells us he's testing them. Chapter 15, verse 25, there the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them. And then we see the same thing again in chapter 16. God tests his people in the wilderness. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean God just kind of dangles temptation out in front of us to watch us struggle and fail? No, of course not. God does not tempt with sin. He's training us. You see, our Father in heaven puts us in situations where we have no other choice but to exercise trust in him. He put he brings us into these circumstances where we are brought to the end of our own resources, where we're confronted with how feeble our, our, our own strength is and how um, foolish it is to be self dependent so that we have to trust in him. That's how our faith grows. You know, you, you go to the gym to exercise and the only way your muscles grow strong is through that resistance, through putting them through um, these exercises. And God wants our trust in him to be more than a head thing. 
You see, most of us here have been in the church a long time. We've been believers for quite some time. And we could say, yeah, the Bible says we should trust God. I I know that he's trustworthy. I know that he can be counted on. But it's one thing to know intellectually that God can be trusted. It's a whole other thing to actually trust him when life is hard. And so God brings us into these difficult circumstances like Israel, faced with water, faced with lack of water, faced with lack of food. What are we going to do? Oh, we have to trust our Father in heaven. He's like that personal trainer at the gym who, who puts you through the exhausting workout routine, not to make you re- miserable, but so that you grow strong. And so God tests our faith in the wilderness to prove it, to deepen it, to help us know by experience that he can be trusted. And so in the wilderness, we tend to doubt God's care for us. And despite our fickleness, despite our weak faith, despite our our misreading of his gracious heart, what do we see God doing here again and again? He provides. God provides for what we need. You know, throughout these episodes at at Mara and then later in chapter 16 with the manna and then chapter 17 with the water from the rock, God shows himself to be so patient, doesn't he? I he he has done so much for Israel and Israel is is so critical of him and yet God is patient with them. God is generous just pouring out his provision on them, even though they grumble, even though they, they question his goodness, God comes through for them again and again. And look at chapter 16, verse 35. At the end of the manna episode, which you know well, uh, we read that in chapter 16, verse 35, the people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Every day for 40 years, God sustained his people with manna. The entire time they wandered through the wilderness until they came to the promised land, God made sure that they had what they needed to keep going. Each morning when they woke up, there it is, the the bread from heaven. Every family, the text tells us, had exactly what they needed. The, The bigger families... We're able to collect more, the smaller families less, but every family had exactly what they needed. And then on the sixth day, God gave them a double portion so that they could rest on the seventh day. Now I want to ask you, do you trust God to sustain you in the wilderness? Will you trust the Lord to give you the help and the grace and the strength that you need to keep going, to keep pressing on toward the heavenly promised land? Israel had to trust God daily. They couldn't store up the manna. That was part of the instruction. It would go bad. They, they couldn't um, you know, pack their refrigerator full of food. God gave them daily bread, not weekly bread, not monthly bread, uh, just enough for today. It was as if God was saying, look, um, don't worry about tomorrow. Just trust me for today. And, and maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, I'm tired. I'm overwhelmed. I don't even know how I'm going to make it through the rest of the week. Or what if my kids have to quarantine again and miss school? Or what if I have to live with this physical pain for the rest of my life? How am I going to do that? What am I going to do about this pile of bills on my desk at home? And Jesus says to you, 
My grace is sufficient for you. Trust me today. Trust me now. Don't, don't worry about tomorrow. Trust me today for today's grace, and then do it again tomorrow, and then do it again the day after that, and the day after that. And before you know it, brothers and sisters, you'll be looking back at 40 years of God's faithfulness to you. God will sustain you with the bread from heaven. Not, not manna, but the, the true bread from heaven. Something better than manna. As, as wonderful as that manna must have been, and the, the description of it makes it sound uh, delicious, but as, as wonderful as that was, our Father in heaven provides us with the true manna, the true bread from heaven, Jesus Christ himself. And we heard what Jesus said earlier in John 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And so Jesus says to you, brothers and sisters, come, come and and feed on me, trust in me, be nourished by my grace, be strengthened by my grace. Let me sustain you. And so God sustains his people in the wilderness. Not only does he sustain his people, he covenants with his people. And that's the second major theme in these chapters, that God covenants with his people. Turn a few pages over to chapter 19. That's page 60 in the Pew Bible if, if you're using that. Chapter 19. By this point, Israel's been journeying through the wilderness for about two months, and now they come to Mount Sinai. And this is the place God promised Moses in chapter 3, you will serve me on this mountain. And now here they are. And this is a very important moment. Israel camps out at Sinai for about 10 or 11 months. Um, From Exodus 19 through Numbers 10, all takes place at this mountain. Very significant time. And, And here at Sinai, God establishes a covenant with Israel. And this is kind of like a a defining the relationship moment. You see, they've been rescued, but, but the terms of the relationship haven't been established yet. And so here's where the relationship begins to take concrete shape. What does it look like for them to be God's people and to have God, Yahweh, as their God? And this covenant here, it, it's a transforming moment. No longer are they, they slaves of Egypt's king. They, they are now transformed into royal servants of the world's true king. Look at verses 3 to 6. Moses goes up the mountain to meet God, and then we read in verse 3, The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And so the the Holy One, the God of Israel, offers his covenant to the people. And there's three things I want you to see here about this covenant-making God. And, and the first is that God desires a relationship with his creatures. He desires a relationship with his creatures. Look at verse 4 again. The Lord says to the people, You saw how I rescued you 
and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to this mountain? No, to myself. You saw how I brought you to myself. You see, that was the goal of their deliverance. Uh, That's why the Lord went to such great lengths to overthrow Pharaoh and the, the dramatic rescue at the sea. They were rescued for relationship. See, relationship is at the heart of what a covenant is. And and this is why Christ came into the world. You and I, as as creatures created by the Creator, we were made to know Him and love Him and enjoy fellowship with Him. And you know that our sin broke that relationship. It destroyed that relationship. And Christ has come to remove the alienation. And at the center of the new covenant that Christ established is that promise from God about relationship. I will be their God. They shall be my people. They all shall know me from the least to the greatest. See, that relationship is at the heart of what God is doing here. He, he brings the people to Himself and, and makes a covenant with them so that they can exist in this, in this covenant bond, this relationship. See, it, the Christian faith is not simply a set of religious rituals. And, and maybe you're here this morning just kind of checking things out. What do Christians think? What do they believe? What is this all about? The, the Christian faith is not simply, you know, go to church on Sundays, sit, stand, say the prayers, do a few good deeds each week. The Gospel is about restoration of relationship. The Gospel is the good news about what Christ has done to bring us back into loving fellowship with the triune God. This This relationship where we're loved by the Father and redeemed by the Son and kept by the Holy Spirit and where we're caught up into the the love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this relationship that we were designed for. So God desires a relationship with His creatures. Second, in the covenant, God gives us a new identity. A new identity. He promises Israel there in verse 5, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples. That, that term, treasured possession, it's used elsewhere in the Old Testament for um, a treasure prized by a king. For example, in First Chronicles 29, it's used to talk about King David's store, his vault of, of gold and silver and other precious items. It, it's as if God is saying to the Israelites, you're the crown jewels in London. He's telling his people, the people whom he's rescued and brought to himself, how how highly he values them. Think about it. In Egypt, they were slaves. They were nobodies. Um, uh, Expendable. But no longer. Now they are beloved children of the great king his prized possession, the apple of his eye. God has given the people whom he's redeemed a a new identity. They are God's people, not Pharaoh's slaves. And God wants them to begin seeing themselves this way. You know, identity is a big issue in our world right now, isn't it? People seem to be very confused, have lots of questions about who they really are. You know, debating things like gender identity. Is, Is gender a given identity? Or is it something determined by anatomy and biology? Um, Or is it a chosen thing, a subjective thing, a fluid thing? And and many people have this sense of not knowing who they are. And they're trying to find themselves. You've heard that kind of language. 
trying to figure out what it means to be the true version of themselves. And apparently it's not going very well. Otherwise, the, the shelves at Barnes & Noble wouldn't be lined with books about it. One of the most urgent tasks for us as Christian men and women is to know who we are in Christ, to know our identity as redeemed people. And as you sit here this morning, do you know who you are? Do you know who you are in Christ? Do you know that you're no longer what you once were? You're no longer that slave in Egypt. You, you're, you are an adopted son or daughter of the Father in heaven. You're beloved by Him. You're chosen by Him, His treasured possession. If you're in Christ, you are forgiven. You are justified. You are welcomed and accepted by God because of Christ. If you're in Christ, you are a new creation, indwelt by the Holy Spirit and made alive together with Christ. You are bound for glory with Christ. See, God wants us to see ourselves as He sees us, as His treasured possession. He wants us to start viewing ourselves and our lives through the lens of our identity in Christ rather than um, those identities that used to define us. God desires a relationship with His creatures. He gives us a new identity. But third, He gives us a holy vocation. See, verse 5 here talks, speaks to Israel's identity. Verse 6 speaks to what God calls them to be and do. He says, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So keep in mind, He's, he's speaking to the entire nation here. And He's saying, all the people, the, the nation as a whole, not just a subset, will, will function as royal priests before the Lord. A kingdom of priests. And, and fundamental to a, a priest's function is access to God's presence. And Israel will have priestly access. They'll enjoy this access to God's presence because He will dwell among them in a special way. We hear echoes of of Eden here. You think of Adam and Eve in the garden. They enjoyed priestly access to God's presence. They also received authority from God to rule the earth as His vice-regents. They had royal and priestly roles, just like um, God is giving to Israel here. And we see again, and this comes up again and again in Exodus, that God is still committed to His original purposes for humanity. That He hasn't given up on his sinful creatures. In Israel here, he's restoring humanity to the status he intended for his human creatures to have under his reign. So Israel will be a kingdom of priests, but second, a, a holy nation, a, a distinct people. Israel as a nation will be consecrated for fellowship with God, a people devoted to his service. And in that sense, they'll represent Yahweh to the world, this kingdom of priests, these, these priest kings will mediate God's blessing to the world, or at least that's what was intended. Now, the Apostle Peter takes all this glorious language and he applies it to, to the church, to men and women in Christ. And he says there in 1 Peter 2, verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. You see, 
in the New Covenant, the church inherits these glorious promises. This is who you are. Priest, kings, and queens. A, a holy nation. You see, redemption in Christ is so much bigger than we realize. You know, to, to be saved by Christ is, is more than just, you know, you go to heaven when you die. What, what we see here is we've been caught up into God's plan for the renewal of the world. The, the church, in a sense, is a, a small foretaste of humanity's restoration to its true identity and vocation. The, the very thing that he commissioned Adam and Eve to do in the garden, but they failed to do. Um, we've been caught up into this plan. Let me, let me just add, comment on one more detail before we look at the next point. And that's that, you know, as you go on and read in chapter 19... Israel embraced the covenant enthusiastically. God lays out these promises. And and we read in verse 8, All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And you got to admire their enthusiasm. But you know their history, right? <laughs> they fail miserably. I mean, not long after this, they're worshiping a golden calf. They failed to be faithful covenant partners but not Jesus. He is the faithful covenant partner that Israel failed to be. And Christ has secured the promised blessings of the new covenant for us. All that God has promised, forgiveness of sins, eternal life, this relationship with Him, Christ has secured it for us through His death and resurrection. And that that covenant bond between us and God, it, it rests on Christ. That relationship cannot be broken. We've been reunited with the God who created us and, and loves us and will go on forever and ever delighting us with His love. And that relationship is secure because of Christ. And so God sustains His people in the wilderness. God covenants with His people in the wilderness. And then third and briefly, God instructs His people in the wilderness. As you turn over to chapter 20, after the, the dramatic display of, of God's presence at, at Sinai, he, he begins to instruct Israel. He starts to lay out the nation's obligations as a covenant partner. And at the beginning of chapter 20, verses 1 to 17, um, God lays out what we call the Ten Commandments. In the text later, they're actually called the Ten Words, these commandments. Now, Many people are familiar with the Ten Commandments. Even if you didn't grow up in the church, maybe you grew up watching Charlton Heston movies, you know something about the Ten Commandments. And even if you know, we don't have them all memorized, um, one thing most people know is there are a lot of thou shalt nots. <laughs> and, it, and it's easy to read the commandments the wrong way. You know, most people think the Decalogue is simply a set of moralisms a list of rules to keep in order to be a good person or even to get into God's good graces. But, but notice this instruction that, that the Lord brings to His people and it continues for several chapters. Notice how it begins there in verses 1 and 2. His instruction is grounded in grace. It says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You know, before there are any commands, before there are any thou shalt nots, there's a word of grace. 
I'm the God who rescued you. Remember that, Israel. I'm the God who brought you to myself. I'm the God who freed you from slavery. You are a redeemed people. I've bound you to myself in covenant love. The context of the commands is grace. The context of the commands is this relationship that God initiated, that God established, this relationship that's founded on His grace. He adopted Israel as His Son. And now you have God the Father giving wise instruction, loving fatherly instruction to His children, teaching them what it means to belong to His family. And this is how families work, right? Or, or ideally how they should work. You know, the, the instruction that parents give their children isn't about how to become part of the family, right? You know, ten things to do to make mom and dad love you. Now, the kids here probably think it feels like that sometimes. But the children already belong to the family, don't they? And they had nothing to do with it. <laughs> In that sense, it's grace. And the instruction comes in the context of that familial relationship. You know, in our house, it's we are the Wentzels, and so we keep our bedrooms clean. (laughs) We go to church on Sundays. We don't punch our brother when he says something annoying. You know, because because of who we are, we live like this. And God is speaking to redeemed people here about life in his kingdom. Grace comes before duty. Uh, Before you shall not do this, you shall not do that, grace. It's not do this to become my people, but because you are my people by grace, here's how you should live. And, And we see that same pattern it holds in the New Testament. If you can remember back to when we studied Ephesians, Paul spends three chapters unpacking the gospel of God's grace in Christ. Here's what God has done for you. Here's who you are in Christ. Here's God's grace. Then in chapter 4, he says, Therefore, live in such a way to honor the God who has redeemed you. Uh, God's law is not an instrument for self-justification. And if you look at the commands, for example, these Ten Commandments, if you look at these things as a ladder to climb up into God's favor, into God's good graces, they will crush you. That is the fast track to despair. And the Puritans used to talk about Christians who had a legal spirit. And what they meant was some believers, some of us, um, For some of us, the Christian life is all duty, little grace. You know, it's just do, 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 and and therefore there's little joy. And and Christians like this, they they don't live in the freedom from the law's condemnation that Christ has purchased. You know, they're they're always trying to measure up, always trying to do more, and never quite quite cutting it, (laughs) because we never do. It's never good enough, And, and... and they picture the Father in heaven as just this, this old man with a, a permanent scowl on his face. Or, or maybe a, a judge sitting behind the bench with a, a white powdered wig and, and just waiting to, to mete out punishment at the slightest infraction. And maybe that's you. You're trusting Christ and yet whenever you hear God's commands, all you hear is condemnation. Just do better. Uh, Stop messing up. Shape up. Stop being a failure. 
And the gospel is not just for those outside of Christ. The gospel comes to those of us who are in Christ already by faith and invites us to look on God's smile in the face of Jesus Christ. He is the one who measured up. He alone. And now His righteousness is ours by faith. And, And you are free now as an adopted son, adopted daughter of the Father in heaven. You are free to hear His commands as what they really are, loving, fatherly instruction, not, not condemnation. You're free to obey Him now as, as a loving, heavenly Father, as, as a child who wants to bring delight to the God, to the Father who has done so much for them. Um, you're free to obey the God who delights even in your imperfect obedience in Christ. In the coming weeks, we're going to look at several chapters of instruction. Some of it is very detailed instruction. And God's laws address all kinds of situations, uh, various circumstances. And it can be tempted, we can be tempted as we hear God's commands to to think, He really just wants to make us miserable. (laughs) God's a cosmic killjoy. That's why he's giving us all this. He's just he's laying these burdens on us to constrict us and and overwhelm us. But but that's not what God intends at all. Remember how it all begins here in chapter 20. I am the Lord your God. I'm the God who has loved you. I'm the God who has rescued you. I'm the God who has released you from slavery. You now belong to me. You know, we were oppressed slaves. We were under the thumb of of sin and death and the devil, but no longer Christ has freed us from that life of misery. misery. We've been set free from the law's condemnation. We've been freed from sin's enslaving power. And now as we journey through the wilderness of this world, the, the God of the wilderness sustains us with his grace. New mercies every morning. Every morning we wake up and it's just more of Jesus. More of Jesus. Oh, you're thirsty, you're hungry, you're tired, you're overwhelmed. More of Jesus. He, he's bound himself to us in covenant love in Christ. And this God is He sent His Spirit into our hearts and written His law on our hearts. And now, by the work of the Spirit in us, we, we're learning to live under God's gracious rule and reign. We're learning to delight in His commandments like the psalmist does in Psalm 119. And that's true freedom, friends. You know, God, God didn't free us from slavery in Egypt just so we could say thanks and then go on our own way. We're we're learning now to live joyfully under His gracious rule and reign. And that's the liberty we have in Christ. And so the, the God of the wilderness, who is He? What is He like? He's a God who sustains His people in the wilderness. He's a, he's a God who covenants with His people and brings them into this intimate relationship um, founded on His grace. And He's a God who instructs His people for our good and ultimately for His glory. So let's pray together and and thank Him for who He is. Our God and Father in heaven, as we reflect this morning on on Israel's sojourn in the wilderness, we recognize that there are so many parallels to our lives as Christians in this world. And Father, we're often overwhelmed and tired and fearful and find ourselves facing things that that are beyond our ability to resolve. And we pray that you would help us to trust you, 
that you would help us to, in our distress, turn to you in faith and trust and, and cry out with humble pleas for help instead of accusations. We thank you that you give us grace, that you give us Christ. We thank you for that new covenant founded on Jesus Christ, that we are safe and secure in your love because of him. And Father, would you increasingly help us to love and obey you out of gratitude, enabled by your spirit. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.